Welcome to Galaxy Forum. I'm your host, Melissa Kaplan, and we're here to explore what's happening in the LCC galaxy, in our classrooms and on campus, and connecting the work of our stars with our community. Lately, it seems that I could explore any number of topics with my guests, as we have many paths that cross. Both my guests today are dance artists, educators, and involved in community building. And what's cool about that is I think that all those paths intersect with our topic, which is leadership, specifically arts leadership, the leadership training programs that you two were selected for and completed, and how those programs are influencing your next steps and how you as leaders hope to influence the arts. So who are my guests? I will briefly introduce you both, uh, Lauren Mudry and Clara Martinez. Thank you so much for being here. Lauren is a professional dancer, choreographer, and educator who's been dancing for over 30 years and is an adjunct professor at LCC. That is substantial. I see you nodding there. Yes, that's a great, <laughs> great accomplishment. She's also a resident teaching dance artist uh, with the Kennedy Center Partners in Education at MSU's Wharton Center. She's Associate Artistic Director of Greater Lansing Ballet Company's Elements Contemporary Dance Company, and she's a fitness instructor at Michigan State University. Clara is the Dance Director at Everett High School for Performing Arts in Lansing, the Chair of the Michigan Dance Council, and she's a lifelong dancer. She represents Lansing's first ward on the city's Arts and Culture Commission and serves on the boards of all of the above Hip Hop Academy and the Cultural Advocacy Network of Michigan. And she just graduated with her master's degree in social work from MSU. Congratulations. Thank you. So thank you both for being here and, and joining for this conversation. Um, besides all these credentials, one thing I know from my experience with you both, Lauren, working together here at LCC, and I should mention that you're both alum, alumni of Lansing Community College mm -hmm. Dance. Yay, that's great. Um, and Clara, we've collaborated together in, in creating dance here at LCC. And um, when I served, when you were the chair of the, the mayor's arts education committee, um, and I was on that. And I what I know from you both is beyond dance, um, beyond community, you just have this incredible, deep commitment to students. And um, so before we talk leadership, I want to just get a sense from you each of where that, that passion for students comes from and teaching, you know, as teachers. Um, and it is enormously important. Um, and there are many teachers that, that, that bring that. Um, but since you're both here today, I'm, I'm really interested to hear from you about that. So whoever wants to dive in first. Yeah. Yeah, so I did not know that I wanted to be a teacher. I should have known by my obsession with highlighters and color coding everything. But <laughs> it was probably in my BFA program at Ohio State. You know, I went into undergrad really thinking I want to be a professional performer, and that was going to be my track. And then, you know, through a series of different health issues that I was having and just experiences and realizations that I was having, um, I discovered that it was not my primary passion, but my it was still within dance that I wanted to be, right? So I started to explore choreography and setting work and somewhere in between that and graduating, I sort of discovered I don't even necessarily know how much I want to impose my vision on other people's bodies, but more so how can I provide them an experience? And I think around that time, I probably should have understood that that's what teaching is, 
but <laughs> I did not, you know. And so going out into the real world, the first thing that you do as a person with a BFA in dance is you start teaching um, a lot of the time to make money, to get discovered, to put yourself out there. And I just remember off the bat being completely fascinated with that whole process of engaging with students in different geographic settings and different environments um, and how much you can really influence someone's life. Mm -hmm. I've seen um, the the pictures of the various rose ceremonies at the end of the oh. year at Everett, which is a way that students honor their teachers and... Uh, um, full of great appreciation and affection. So it's it's wonderful to see that and to yeah. hear how you came to be doing that. Yeah. Uh, Lauren? Um, it's kind of the same thing with Clara. It kind of happened all of a sudden. Um, but looking back, I, I think it was um, a teacher that I had um, when I was growing up giving me that responsibility to kind of work the si side by side especially with the younger kids. And that was, uh, it was a, a wonderful way to kind of see how dance, just not as a performer, but how the responsibility as a teacher in education was, um, was so important. And then when my journey led me to Eastern Michigan to do my, um, to complete my dance degree, um, it was actually another professor that looked at me. I was actually thinking about doing dance therapy um, because I, I liked that mechanical trying to understand what the human body is trying to express, you know, um, and more of the internal um, happenings. But she looked at, I remember this very clearly, it was kind of like a, every once in a while you would come to your instructor and then they would say, how you doing? And, you know, what's going on? And she looked at me and she says, Lauren, you're going to be a teacher. Hmm. Did you ever think about that? <laughs> and I was like, no, you know, like, I think I always was like, I always enjoyed it, but I never really saw that as like the path. But that whole conversation that I had with her was like, oh, my goodness, like everything that has led me here was kind of helping me build this, this foundation to become a teacher. And so I explored that. And I realized that everything that I've learned, I about myself, um, past injuries, you know, dancers always get <laughs> injured or having little flare-ups every once in a while. That was also um, a good foundation to to really work with with people from all walks of life. And I really enjoyed giving a place of safety for those people that um, that were literally looking to continue dancing and and wanted a, an atmosphere where you know they could feel safe and, and brave and find out who they are as, as people and as artists. And I, I really was enjoying that. And that's why I was like, I'm going to pursue this. I really love when the, the light bulb goes off and, and seeing students from, it doesn't matter what age, four to adult, it's um, if they've been struggling to overcome something or work on something and it happens. Like that was the moment that I love is seeing that aha happen and being present to witness that moment. Um, that is the most rewarding thing. And I, that's just, it's just a beautiful thing to watch as a, as, as an educator. Um, what a gift to yeah. have that. Yeah. One thing that, that, um, you both said, and it, it, it just struck me is that you, you sort of, it wasn't like what you set out to do. 
I mean, that, that happens for a lot of us in life. We find an opportunity that we hadn't, hadn't even known might exist, but that, that, um, and, and sometimes I think leadership is, is, can be similar that you don't set out and go, I'm going to be a leader necessarily. Um, but you find that one of the things I love about the programs that you've both, uh, been, um, a part of is how intentional they are in terms of developing leadership skills for um, up and coming uh, uh, professionals um, in the arts. And um, so it, it just it strikes me as an interesting uh, commonality between how you each got into teaching, I think how a lot of people might get into teaching. Um, but fortunately for both of you, it, sparked something incredible and that in turn sparks your students so these programs that you that you both were part of the michigan arts and culture council's rising leaders programs Mm -hmm. clara was Mm -hmm. it 20 21 to 22 and you 22 23 just completed that Mm -hmm. and that's a statewide program and then clara you are part of the inaugural cohort of the National leaders of, uh, yeah, the of national leaders of color, color fellowship mm-hmm. program, um, which is a brand new program. Um, when I was studying, uh, and actually had an inclination to arts administration, there was nothing like that out there. I mean, it's, it's been been a decade or two, <laughs> yeah. and uh, but this is this is tremendous. So I want to know about these programs. What, um. What they entail, uh, uh, Lauren, uh, if you could start and tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about the arts, Michigan Arts and Culture Council's yep. Rising Leaders Program. Absolutely. Um, it's a rigorous, interactive, personal develop initiative. Um, it's, it's all about the advancement of Michigan arts and leaders and designed by the MACC and Partners in Performance. MACC, that's the Michigan Arts and Culture, Culture Council. Yep. yep. Much easier to say than the whole thing that I keep almost stumbling on. Um, and the program is, without sounding too cliche, life-changing. Really? It is. Um, back in, what was it, 2022, I, I always like going in... J- to programs just to advance, um, you know, increase knowledge or, you know, meet wonderful people. And, and I think with the pandemic, all of that kind of stopped. So I was really needing some type of, or I was craving, I guess. And so I would ask my fellow colleagues, is there anything out there that you would recommend? Because I'm looking for, I'm looking for something and I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And um, Clara was one of the people that I talked to and a, a fellow colleague and they were like, Rising Leaders Program, definitely. Like, I think you should um, put yourself in and see if see if they'll accept you and, and just go for it. So is it a competitive um, process? Is it open to, like, who's it open to and, um, and how do you get yeah. selected? I think the primary uh, candidates are anyone between the ages of, what, like 20 and 45 mm-hmm. uh, across the state of Michigan involved in the arts um, so, I mean, it's statewide open to apply and usually a, my, my cohort had 12 people and I know Lawrence had 16, so I'd say it's pretty selective. Mm-hmm. And it's a, how long does the program last? What does it involve? Are you in, you know, are they workshops or, or how does it? There are three, um, in, intensives. 
that go throughout the the year. So the first one for us, I don't know about, but it was um like October, January, and then in April. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of are spread out. And um, I will say this, that my whole core would agree with this is that it always came at a wonderful time. Hmm. How so? Um, when we, so we had our first initiative and so we go through the process and then we are gone for a couple of months working on our projects, going through life, right? But all of us would always come back to the next intensive and say, I really needed this at this moment. You know, something was happening back home with work, family, whatever it was. And I just needed a time to stop, pause and reflect. And the intensives I felt were an opportunity for us to really pause because we don't usually get that when we're constantly in our own habitats. <laughs> right. So um, it always came at a really awesome time. Um, and they all had something different to offer. And I, I truly believe that everything happens at the opportune time, even though sometimes you want things to happen when you want them to. But it just made the experience even more profound. And the bond that you get with the people that you're working with in these intensives, and even the the leaders that are leading these intensives, it's, I can't even put into words the experience that you are left with. Um, I was incredibly sad to for the last intensive to end because I thought it was so moving in so many ways. And I learned that I am capable of so much more than I realized. And that um, a lot of the things that I was told were weaknesses were actually armor and how powerful those are. And that gave me the gas to really just be like, okay, you know what? We're going to do this. I'm not going to let fear take over. I'm going to use these wonderful tools that these wonderful people, even the people that I was sitting with, I learned so much from. They helped me realize the potential that I, that I have. And the family, the tribe that I created in that process, we, we were able to let our guards down and be seen which is hard, which is incredibly hard. And that's what this whole program really did was bring awareness to, well, just bring bringing awareness and, and realizing that a lot of the things that um, I still can give my students, like preparing like safe and brave spaces for my students, I can utilize that. That is something that I can do. Um, and I mean, I could talk about this all day long, but there is just there's just so many things that you are given in the process. Um, and I would recommend anybody that wants to learn more about not only themselves, but to be a, a better leader or a supporter of the arts or even just find a tribe that they can bounce ideas off of. And you don't feel like you're being judged. You feel like they're giving you feedback that's going to help you become better. So. That's tremendous. Yeah. Um, we're talking with Lauren Mudry and Clara Martinez about arts leadership and specifically about a, a couple of really wonderful programs, the MACC's Rising Leaders uh, 
program and the National Leaders of Color Fellowship program. Clara, was your experience with the rising leaders similar to Lauren's? Yeah, I think that in a huge way, the Rising Leaders of Michigan program prepared me for the National Leaders of Color Fellowship. So it was nice to do one in connected to the other, right, um, consecutively. Um, the base of the the learning and the pedagogy for rising leaders for leadership as a concept starts with self-reflection, hmm. right? So in order to be a, a strong leader, to have integrity, to value the people in front of you, um, you have to come and work from a self-reflective place and you have to know yourself, right? You have to own your strengths, you have to own your weaknesses, um, and you have to be able to confront yourself and move forward from there. Or else the people that are in, you're in service to won't be able to do that, right? And I think they also, John um, McCann and um, Odell, nice. yeah, are so great. And Chad Swan Badger, that's just a really dynamic team of people that really push you to a, a place of vulnerability within yourself. So in order to serve the other people that are in your charge of leadership, right? Like are, are treated well. And I, th I think they do a really good job of talking about and framing leadership as service, not as a title, not as just a role that you play or a, a salary mm -hmm. level, right? Um, but anybody that is serving in an influential way is a leader. So that could be any job mm -hmm. that you could be in. So, yeah, you start from that place of self-reflection, and then they do give you some frameworks and some tools to work with that are, like, you know, evidence-based and um, focusing on how to influence others and how to be influenced to lead better. And then they push you towards your vision, your action plan, and, you know, how you want to be moving in the world. And you're right. A lot of the time, you know, when you're working professionally, you have to seek out that professional development and learning on your own. And for something to be tailored to artists, arts administrators, arts educators is really critical. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, tell me a little bit about the National Leaders of Color Fellowship Program. Yeah. That is, and it's brand new. I, I, mm -hmm. It's exciting. Yeah. So West Staff, which I can't remember all of the letters in the acronym, but they are the regional arts organization that serves... Uh, they're the equivalent to our arts Midwest, right? So okay. they're out on the western side of the state, and those are there are six U.S. RAOs, regional the arts. western side of this of Michigan. Uh, no, no, oh, sorry, the U.S. Of the country, yeah. Okay, like California. Um, yes, Washington. Got so it. the there are six RAOs, regional arts organizations, and they West Staff has had this program for a long time. I would say like ten years or so. Um, that they've run for their region. And this is the first one that is at, in a partnership with all of the RAOs at a national level. So we had one representative from each state and territory. And so I was the representative from Michigan. And it was really awesome to be able to get to know um, arts leaders that are of color from all across the country and create a tighter connection with those within my arts Midwest region. Um, I don't think I would have been able to take on the learning of that fellowship if not for participating in Rising Leaders first. So Rising Leaders, because it is an in-person intensive and it happens three times throughout the academic year, um, it's a very critical experience, I feel like. And it trained me in a way to be able to dive deeply into the curriculum for um, the National Leaders of Color. I can I can see how that would work. That's yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, 
and I'm also thinking in my mind, you're working on your master's degree at the same time and working full time and <laughs> da, 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 da. So, I have a lot of laundry to do. Let's just say that. Laundry, what's that? So I want to want to spend the rest of our, our time together talking with you about learning how, um, what you've learned, how you see that, you taking that, that forward um, and, you know, how that's going to influence you as, as professionals and how you want to use that. What, what do you want to you know, you mentioned something about creating a plan. I don't remember if it was you, Clara or Laura, but that that was part of what you what you have to do is creating kind of a vision. Um, what, how do you yep. see that playing out in the the near future and and impacting the community? So I realized through both of these programs that I am most passionate about dance in public schools and functioning within the public school education system across the country and community based dance practices. And the equity of, or the inequities, really, of um, dance across the country, right? In the United States, we don't have a primary culture of dance. And so, and in other in other cultures and countries, they do. Dance is more so at the forefront. People know how to dance. People socialize by dancing. And um, within our United States culture, we just don't have the same um, priority of dance. And so... The push that I feel and the vision that I have is all about envisioning people having access to dance within public schools. It should just be a right, right? It should just be available to people as a path of discovery. Um, you can become a professional dancer if you want. You can become a professional choreographer. But I think more so it's about being a cultured, educated uh, well-rounded person. And I think dance is the, because it's the embodied fine art, right? You are able to create art. You're able to understand it by um, witnessing it and watching it. You're able to perform it. You're able to reflect. So, and that's all done with your body, you know? So there's this visceral experience that happens for people. Whereas like you could put your viola down, mm -hmm. you could put your paintbrush, you know? And sometimes I envy those artists. Cause I'm like, I wish I could just put it away for a moment, right? But it's always with me. Um, so yeah, I think through both of those fellowships, I realized that that is my main priority. And I did my final project um, or my thesis project for my master's on the social justice aspects of having arts education in public schools from the lens of social work. And so all of those experiences time tied together, I feel like was a big whirlwind. And like I said, I have a lot of laundry and dishes to do, but um, it sort of just solidified that mentality and vision and experience for me. Lauren, how about you? Um, it it kind of ties into what Clara talked about. Um, I think for me, going through and and looking at the vision of where I I see myself after this experience, and it took me. When I got home on that last that last day, it took me a couple of days to kind of settle because there was just so much information. And I think the conclusion that I came to was that I, as an educator, as a, a, a person, as an artist that wears many hats in very different ways, that I want to provide an environment that's not only nurturing, um, but also brave and safe, where someone can come in 
and develop a vocabulary that's all of their own and and not feel the fear of being right or wrong. And I think that's why I love dance so much. It's a form of communication. It's a form of us trying to connect um, when we don't have words to really kind of... Your body is the way that you communicate. And I think that's what I've always been, you know, since I was little. It was a way for me to feel accepted and feeling like this is something great and it makes me feel good and I, I can express my feelings and and I want to provide that 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 environment for those people that feel they aren't heard and and nurturing them in a creative way where they can feel powerful. And it doesn't matter where you come from, how old you are. You can dance for everyone that wants to just jump into it. And as an educator, trying to make sure that the being brave and becoming a more um, reflective practitioner after this experience is making me more aware and see people um, in a different way and more of a... I was trying to figure out a good word. Trying to connect with them on a level where I see you. And it's going to be messy and complicated. But I'm here whenever you need me. Have fun. Get messy is always something that I say <laughs> with my students. Because I think it's important. Yeah. Um, and the things that I've learned are just... I'm a much better listener cuz I've always I always felt like I was a be- a good listener when when someone needed me but listening comes in very different ways and I think as a dancer you have to listen to how someone's using their body and how they're expressing their thoughts and maybe giving them space to figure that out um and it's a way to not only evolve as an educator but helping your students evolve as people. That's really powerful. And it's um, interesting, you both talked about the self-reflection, um, how that's an essential part of this training, um, and how, Lauren, I think you said tribe, you used the word tribe, but but how also being in contact, Clara, with with arts leaders from around the country, how there's a certain validation that you get. And um, I love what I'm hearing from both of you. Both will continue in, in teaching, um, but to, to, you know, really use these tools in the classroom and, and to further uh, those opportunities within the educational systems, whichever systems uh, you're working in. Um, what a great program or great programs these are and and how fortunate that you're both here in the Lansing area. I (laughs) hate to cut us off, but I think we are just about out of time. So I want to thank you both, Lauren Mudry and Clara Martinez, for joining today. Um, It's it's so valuable and so important and um, really grateful that those programs exist and that you've both been able to participate. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to connect with me or our guests visit lccconnect.org where you will find this information in the notes for this episode you'll also find other episodes of galaxy forum and all the lcc connect programming 
Special thanks to our technical producer today, Lane Ingram, and to Andy Callis for composing our theme music. I'm Melissa Kaplan, and this is Galaxy Forum on LCC Connect. Connecting you with Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Engaged learning and academic success is a priority at Lansing Community College. To help students navigate their educational career, LCC has created a proactive approach to learning and providing students with several academic support services. To find out what's available, visit lcc.edu services. Lansing Community College welcomes transfer students. Transfer students may apply prior credits toward their LCC degree, certificate, or transfer program. Learn more at lcc.edu slash youbelong. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Welcome to Community Convos, a podcast and radio program from LCC Connect with conversations about what's happening in Lansing and around mid-Michigan. And welcome once again to the Convo. My name is Dedelian, and in the studio with me today is a man who wears many, many hats. Uh, he is a community activist, and of course, he is the president of the Michigan Institute for Contemporary Art. Terry Terry, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here again. And of course, we are at that time of the year, probably one of Lansing's most favorite things and longest running festivals. I mean, I don't know if it's the longest, but it's definitely one of the longest running, isn't it? You know, if I check into that, I th- we started in 1995. So it could be for it's been quite a while. Yeah. Jazz, Jazz Fest is what we're talking about. Of course, Jazz Fest, Michigan, uh, taking place this year for the uh, first week uh, of our first weekend of August. I don't know whether to call it a week or a weekend because we're talking both, aren't we? We are. Well, we're, you know, this year we're starting. We, we've added something new. We're starting yeah. Wednesday. It used to be a two day event and three day. Now it's four days. So we kick off Wednesday night with Anthony Stanko. It's an incredible all star band. Includes Rodney Whitaker. Randy Napoleon and others uh, were to kick that off at Urban Beat. So that's, that's a big change. That's a nice sure. lineup right there already. That and, and that's the very first night. Yep, that's our wow, kickoff. That's awesome. So tell me a little bit. Uh, first of all, let's let's get into the, uh, the the gist of why you do this each and every year. So uh, the nonprofit Michigan Institute for Contemporary Art's mission has been, you know, from the beginning to uh, catalyze community transformation by providing quality arts programming. So we, you know, create spaces through festivals, through the art gallery, et cetera, to bring people together so that they can meet old friends, make new friends, and in an arts context, have conversations and work together to build our community. That's, that's what we're about. Very good. And like you said, we've kind of extended it from two nights to three nights to four now. You just like making yourself some extra work, don't you? <laughs> yeah, that's, there's that. But, you know, the first two nights are manageable. You know, they're inside Urban Beat. Sure. So we have a great sound system there. The bands are treated well, and it'll sure. be great kickoff events. Uh, the fundraiser Thursday night is for the Lawrence Low Leathers Foundation. 
I mean, we have some great talent lined up for this entire festival. And, and I saw you had some of the fun acts in there. And by that, I mean, uh, getting a chance to kind of watch some of the kids playing a little bit, too. Who do we have lined up in that area? School of Rock, I know, is on there. School of Rock has been part of our thing for a while now. We have uh, a couple of young uh, musicians. They're actually at MSU uh, Jazz Studies program. Max Gage Trio, Ruben Stump Trio are going to be performing uh, at the events and uh, as part of the Afterglows as well. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about the Urban Beat, of course, that being part of it. Uh, but as the years have changed, this has been going on since 95, kind of the location in some ways has sort of changed. Oh, yeah. uh, explain what we're going to be looking at this year. Well, I think when we first started doing it, we actually were doing it, some of the festival in the parking lot, yeah. lot 56. And then on Turner Street, we'd close that down and people were saying, well, where do we park? So we said, well, we've got a parking lot. Why don't we let people park in the parking lot and we'll move the festival? So we closed down the street more. We have two stages on Turner Street. Mm-hmm. We opened up another stage we call the River Stage, which is behind Urban Beat. Thanks to Ferguson Development, they let us use that lot. So it's a great stage, nice intimate stage. And then inside Urban Beat. So that gives us four, right now four stages, which... It's probably enough. <laughs> yeah, it's quite enough, actually. But I do like the, the fact that you got the river stage now because it does kind of lend itself to, um, I don't know, kind of be able to switch from one act to the other a lot quicker and easier or easier because, you, you know, you, you can overlap a little bit. Right. Uh, whereas, whereas in years past, if you had that overlap, it would just sound like cacophony in the middle of the, of, right. of, of right. the festival. Well, you know, and some of what we do is intentional, like... Um, we stop one stage and have another stage start up. It kind of forces people to not just go sit down, take a spot and stay sure. there the whole time. You, sure. get, you, know, you have to move to hear another band. And that's a good thing because now you bump into somebody. I mean, figuratively, you know, literally. And, uh, and that's a good thing. So then you meet people that way. Well, and you're talking about walking around, and it's a little bit different now because now we got the uh, social district. Oh, yeah, as well, that's right? big. That's big. The social district. So now people can buy, you know, adult beverages mm-hmm. in a properly labeled cup, and they can walk around anywhere. They don't have to stay combined in in the in a fenced-in area. So that's another bonus that really has been in a boon to the to the area as well. If uh, people wanted to get, uh, say, T-shirts and posters, they can do that, can't they? We're going to have all in there. We'll have vintage shirts as well as this year's, you know, Jazz Fest shirt, and uh, yeah. Do you usually have those available in MICA, or do you have them out on the street? We, I believe this year we're doing them in a, in a separate booth. So there'll okay. be a booth on the street. Probably, I think they're right at the entryway. So you come in the north side, and you get your pick up your ticket, your wristband, your drink tickets, and you can buy a T-shirt. What exactly does the ticket get a person? There's two levels of tickets. One's premier seating, so that's mm-hmm. the upfront rows and both stages, uh, both of the two uh, south and river stages. So it gives you those premier seats up front in all the stages, actually. And I think they're only $25 for the whole weekend for both nights, both nights, excuse me. And then uh, the $15 ticket is for both nights, Friday and Saturday, and that's general admission seating. Okay. Okay. And and in the beginning here, we were talking a little bit about uh, some of the folks that you had. Was that part of the benefit concert? We have the Ashton Moore organization performing that night, night, Ruben Stump and Tom Duffel performing that night. And that's for the Lawrence Lowell Leathers Foundation. That is Thursday night. And, you know, we're, we're, you know, asking a donation that night. Um, that was uh, Thursday? $35. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the other thing I forgot to mention about or ask about uh, with the tickets is what if somebody wanted to grab some ahead of time? What do, what do they do? Where do oh, they, they go? can go online. So there's uh, it's uh, it's a mouthful. <laughs> but if they if they go to the Micah website, but it's you know bit bit dot ly slash my jazz fest twenty three. I guess it's not that bad, and you can go online and buy your ticket through Brown Paper Tickets. So you can and, get and it easily. Yeah, so time. you could you could pop on uh, the Michigan Institute uh, 
for contemporary arts website and then go yep. from there. Right. Yep. Probably the easier way to do it. I think yeah. well, there are show up and you, you'll get in. You got some beautiful uh, artwork on uh, this year's poster. Uh, we do. That was by actually an aunt of mine from the forties, uh, Alma Marino, but she did it in the thirties or forties. It's a little bit reminiscent of, uh, I want to say Juan Gris. Yeah, it's, it's Cubist. It's the Cubist influence. It's got that yeah. vibe, yeah. I like it. It's good stuff. Uh, we also have some great talent this year. James Carter Quartet with Lady Champagne. And James Carter is a phenomenal musician out of Detroit. T-Bone Paxton and the Old Town Stompers. We did something unique last year with them. They did a show at Urban Beat, a speakeasy show, and he put together a 1920s only song era band, jazz. He had... Uh, uh, a couple horns, two guitars, trombone, and singing. Okay. Uh, no drum, no bass, and he's putting together a unique sound. Really was phenomenal. But all the they were all Prohibition era songs, so that's what he's got on tap. And he's part of the uh, Planet Dinonet uh, band. There. That sounds really cool. They, they, they're just phenomenal. Um, Ami Amorete Quartet. She's out of uh, Chile. Uh, I think she support you now, but she's a phenomenal singer and artist. We have the Lansing Big Band, who I don't know, I can't even remember the last time they played. So we have a big band. Michael Deese is like getting some. Yeah, he's top of the jazz charts right now. All right. Always, as always, like a variety of styles of jazz uh, at uh, yeah. Jazz Fest as well. What about volunteers? Are you still in need of that? Always need, but we never have too many volunteers. It was kind of a rhetorical question, but I. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And they can do it by going to the website. Um, mishearts.org, M-I-C-H-A-R-T-S, org, or call 371-4600 and volunteer. Them. And just, just to add a little incentive, what is the incentive? Uh, you get a T-shirt, a meal, and uh, a soda or water as part of the package. Okay. So, plus you get to hear great music and help everybody out in the community. Again, about the community, you know, Jazz, as you mentioned this earlier, is you know not only well-attended, but it's probably the most diverse gathering of people in Lansing, all year long, every year. Yeah, you you literally bring thousands to the to, to Old Town when Young, this happens. Old yeah, ethnicities, every, you name it, they're there. And a lot of dancing too. Good dancing, yeah. Always nice. Again, the website. Uh, well, you can just look up Michigan Institute for Contemporary Art. That's probably the easiest and best way to do it. Uh, you could also look up Jazz Fest Michigan. Terry Terry, president of the Michigan Institute for Contemporary Art. I uh, appreciate you coming in and talking with us a little bit about Jazz Fest. Thank you. See you there. You've been listening to Community Combos, a program from LCC Connect with conversations about what's happening in our community. To listen to this episode on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org or find us on your favorite podcast platform. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on Community Combos, email us lcc-connect at lcc.edu. And thanks for joining the combo. This is LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. K-12 Operations at Lansing Community College is a proud collaborator of the Lansing Promise Scholarship, offering graduating high school seniors who live within the Lansing School District and attend a high school within district boundaries an opportunity to attend LCC. The scholarship offers 65 credits over the course of four years from high school graduation. For more information on the Lansing Promise Scholarship at LCC, please visit lcc.edu slash hope.
The Job Training Center at Lansing Community College provides two-month job training opportunities that are free to eligible participants. Training courses range from information technology to administrative assisting. For more information, visit lcc.edu slash jtctraining. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. This is Melissa Ford Locken. Rosalie Petrowski. Susan, Seraph, and Jess. Editors for the Washington Square Review. Washington Square On Air showcases the poetry and fiction of the latest edition of LCC's literary journal, The Washington Square Review, read by the poets, authors, and editors themselves. Expect the unexpected as our contributors express experience and fantasy with humor, imagination, poetic license, irony, and passion. If you love language at its most original, please join us in our audio town square to celebrate a community of writers spanning from around the world to to Lansing. Lansing. Hi, this is Melissa Ford Locken. I'm one of the editors with the Washington Square Review. I'm here with Kevin Brown today. His story is one of the ones that's featured in our journal. And the first thing I'm going to ask you, Kevin, is tell us a little bit about your story, what was going on in your life at the time that you wrote it, and how does it fit in with your overall canon of work? Well, in terms of what was going on in my life when I wrote it, it was actually two distant periods of my life that I wrote it. It was based on something that happened to someone that was a little older than me in high school. She was paralyzed from the waist down and sort of what happens in the story at the end is kind of what happened with her. About five years later, I wrote about five pages of that and I got stuck. Then a few years later, a friend of mine, he was married to a woman who was in a car wreck and she got paralyzed from the waist down. And then he slowly started to slip away from her, like stop having anything to do with her. It's like it just changed everything for them. And that second part came about 12 or 13 years after the first five or six pages of the story. And then when I started writing um, my first novel, which I just completed, to take a break from the voice that I was in, I sat down and that first few pages, the the second part of the story that I told you about with, with my friend had happened, and it just sort of fit. It's like the two just went together in a weird sort of way. It came very quickly within a couple of days after that. So about 12 or 13 years and a couple of days, was I was able to write it. So you think it was the work in the novel that stirred something loose in your imagination that helped you bridge the two pieces together? When I wrote the first few pages, something happened in my life where I stopped writing. I just stopped for the 12 years or whatever. I just did not touch anything. I just stopped. And then one day when I wanted to start writing this novel, it just kind of came back. I was never going to write again. My plan was to be done with it. I just sat down and I wrote a page of this novel and everything started to come back. I never wanted to stop writing. It just was pouring out of me. Everything was new and fresh and and my love had sort of rekindled for it again. So you say that there's 12 years when you really didn't write anything at all? No. Did you have a different creative outlet? No. I had a sort of a, a tragedy type thing in my life that happened and Anything I do, I go like headlong into it, and and I was just going to basically destroy myself. I had gone on that bender where I wasn't going to be around to write anymore anyway. I was going to die drinking. That's what my plan was. But when I stopped, well, then it all came back, and I kind of had to learn to write again. Did that help you come up with new ways of writing since you were relearning it? Did it spark new voices, new perspectives in the writing? 
it did. I came to writing late. I hadn't even read a book my first year of college. Where I grew up, I didn't know of any libraries and I didn't have any books. So I hadn't even read a full book other than what was in like high school. Tell us a little bit about so like where I, you grew up. I grew up in several places, but Memphis is, you know, and then there was a place in Texas that I moved to. It was just kind of skipping around, but they were always, we were always very poor. And, um, you know, I played guitar and stuff in bands and I would write songs. People would ask me, have you read this guy or this guy? And I didn't, I hadn't even heard of them. Like, so you how know, did you so, get uh, started then? How did you get started writing? My first year in college, one night I, I kind of got up and wrote a little one act Christmas play that some people really liked and it was, it was really bad. But the way I, I learned storytelling was orally. My dad is the best liar on the planet. I'll be with him when something happens. And then an hour later, he's telling what happened, and he'll tell it completely the way it didn't happen, but he was trying to get reactions. And then I learned editing through the way he would tell it the next time because he would leave out the stuff that didn't get a laugh and then amplify the stuff that did. So I began writing stories like you talk, basically, with no rules. You know, I would be jumping from first person to second to third. And so when you read this story, it is completely different, the voice, than what the novel is. How long into your writing career was it until you decided to submit things and see about getting published? I didn't even know that was a thing until like the first several months until I got into uh, an undergrad writing class. And um, I won an undergrad award. They wanted us to submit a story, and I did, and it won an award. And then they, they started teaching me how to do it. I didn't know what a cover letter was. I didn't know where to look. And then it was a, just a few months, and then I won a competition, like a, a writing contest. And that was my first publication. And then from then on, I, I learned how to do it. So tell us a little bit about the class that you took. Was that a creative writing class? It was. I, I was a, a marketing major and an English minor and uh, took a little writing class. And then after that class, I flipped my major and minor and I became an English major and a marketing minor. So it sounds like taking that writing class was probably the first formal education you had on the so-called rules that you were talking about. Were there other mm -hmm. ways that you learned the rules, like what you were supposed to do and what you weren't supposed to do? And then I'm also wondering, well, is there stuff that you found that was successful that people told you that you can't do that, but you did it anyway and it did work? <laughs> it kind of split people. Some would say, you can't, I mean, this you're doing this or you're doing that, and that's not really how it goes. And then others would say, that's refreshing. And the only way I kind of knew that I was not following like a protocol was when we would turn in our packets of stories and stuff, especially in grad school, you didn't put your name on it. So you'd get like five stories that we'd do that week and nobody would have their name on it. And like four of them could have been anybody, but mine would always look different on the page. So I started to see kind of how they would structure things. My flashbacks would be different if I put a flashback in or, it, you know, it'd just be so random. And they had a structure to theirs, but I still, I just kept the way I was. I was finding success with it. Even like I played guitar, I, I didn't read music. I just learned by rewinding a cassette over and over. So I just kind of did that same thing with writing. I, I just swung at the heavy bag and, uh, and saw what I could do, I, I, you know. <laughs> so you finished your undergrad with a minor in marketing. Your undergrad is in English, and then you went and got an MFA. Was there a space between the undergrad graduation and applying to the MFA? Uh, no, I, I, it was none. Um, I applied to several. My wife at the time, she did not get accepted into those grad schools, so she did get accepted into the school we were at. So I applied there and got in. Little did I know, it's the only, at the time, it may be different now, but it was the only grad program in the country that's four years instead of two. So um, the way my graduation, my credits ran out as an undergrad was in December 
of uh, 2004, and I went right in by myself in January to the grad program in 2005. So the grad program that we're talking about, for anyone who's not familiar, is a MFA, a Master's in Fine Art, and so it's a specific program for people that are focused just on creative writing. Was yours mm-hmm. on fiction, poetry? Mm-hmm. Was it a mix, or was it focused in just fiction? Okay, only yeah. fiction. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. And you and I were talking before we started recording, and you let me know that you'd gone back and gotten your MFA um, later in life. So you were a little bit older than the other students. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, like what it's like to be in a grad program when you're older. What are the benefits? Well, I was only older by a couple of years because I had to kind of retake high school over again. I had to kind of get my credits, my grades where I could be accepted into a bigger university. So it kind of put me behind. Like I said, I walked right out of undergrad and right into grad, but it was four years. So the benefits to me was um, I was married at the time, so the the partying, it, we, we all started to have lots of parties, you know, MFA programs, That's but I didn't have sort of the distractions of, like, being alone and single and at college and all that stuff. It was just work. I just wrote all the time. I was a little more mature, and I didn't go into to any of my college uh, with sort of like, let's, it's, let's just time to have fun, you know. I went in really where I had let myself down in high school and didn't care. I went in focused on my grades and, and everything. So I was just a little more mature, right. better work ethic. <laughs> what about the marketing? Has that, how does that weave into your writing or doesn't it? I, I have a guy who, who uh, lives in uh, DC. He used to be in a writer's group with me. He helps me with marketing myself because I was really good at, at business and marketing and stuff. And, and it was one of my professors who guided me into that just as one of my professors later guided me into writing telling me I should pursue that. So I was very good at learning about marketing and, and, and everything. But when it comes to like marketing myself or in my work, I, I just, I'm not very good at it. And I have a guy who kind of helps me like stay on track of even trying to do that. But now that I, that I write, that's all I do. Okay. That's interesting because there are a lot of different ways to handle marketing and marketing yourself as a, you know, a published mm-hmm. author, because you have quite an extensive list of publications are there any mm-hmm. that stand out to you as personal favorites, you know, projects that you are especially connected to? In terms of like uh, literary publications and stuff like that? Yeah. Or or I know you also had a movie, you had television. Yes, yes. Uh, those were great. And, and they kind of like get the most attention. But in terms of like satisfying or rewarding, it's, it could be the littlest uh Being asked to, to do an interview is going to be one of them because I've never been asked that. But uh <laughs> In that 12 years where I quit writing, this editor from, it's called the Canary Press in Australia, she emailed me several times and I never answered my email. And one day I just caught it and she said, please, please get back with me. And she she said, we're one of the bigger literary journals over here. And I read a story of yours about five years ago and it just hit me. This story has stayed with me and I just wanted to reach out and find you and see if we could republish it. Like that came in the middle of me never wanting to write again, but it's like it was still there, you know, something was still there because there's this, this lady on the other side of the rock trying to reach out to me of a story she'd read five years ago and wanting to, to reprint it like that. It stands out to me as something rewarding and big. And a couple of uh, fellowships I won that were really big that kind of came when I needed them the most and stuff like that. The, the, the film was interesting because I got hired to do the film based on a, that short story that I won an award with as an undergrad. Tell us a little background about the film. It's a, it's called Living Dark. It's a thriller horror film, and it's sort of set in caves. 
I was in a film class, and it was on a Wednesday night, storming really badly. It was like a three-hour class, and we had to take a test for the first half of the class, and you sit out in the hall and wait for everybody to finish and then come back in for the second half of the class. And, and this guy started talking to me out in the hall, and we were talking about movies because we were in a film class. I told him about me writing and stuff. He said, there's this guy you really have to meet. He's a director. And after that class, we drove in the storm to, to his house, and uh, we sat and we talked about films up until like two in the morning, something like that. And uh, I told him I had a story, I had that story in my car and he said he wanted to read it. And I went out and I got it and gave it to him. And I went back home, went to bed. And when I woke up, there was like 22 messages on my phone where he kept sending me stuff over and over and said, you're going to write this movie. You're the writer. So that's how that started. And then they shot it, shopped around at film festivals and won a couple of little awards. And, um, and then it was bought by a film company and it came out we shot it in 2006, and I think they finally came out sometime around 2013 or something like that. It's not my proudest moment. It's, it is what it is, a little B-horror movie. I mean, but <laughs> it was fun. I didn't have any of the software to format a script. I had never read a script, so I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, just like everything, and I just sort of just went at it. And so that was it was really it was a unique experience, but it, it, it also, once you hand over your work, it's out of your hands. And I'm, I like to, you know, either sail the ship and be the man sailing it or be the one going down with it if it's no good. And I wasn't, I mean, I just had to give it away and let, let the chips fall where they may. So the writing process for that, how would you compare it to writing a book? It was a lot faster because we had to get so many pages a day. I mean, it had to be 15 pages a day. So perfection was out the window. It kind of taught me to let go of things and put the best you can out there and, and keep going. About 15 chapters into my second novel now, and it's really slow going. But my first novel, it just poured out. So it was almost as fast as the screenplay. So it, it just taught me to get the surface of the water first and then worry about the depth. Don't try to think too deep. Just get it out there and then you can get the depth later. So you said it came from a short story that you had. Was it hard to let go of any pieces of the short story, or did you find that you were able to incorporate everything from the story into the script? Well, the movie, was it was not my story. He just read my story and, and wanted me as the writer. The story he had already he was going to do. Like, they had an idea. They didn't have a script. Okay. So uh, once he said I was going to write it, then we started sitting down and, like, breaking the story, like, trying to come up with, the characters and everything in it. My short story was just a sample of what I, how I write and stuff. They even later bought that short story, the rights to it. And uh, we were going to turn it into a screenplay, but funding and everything like that. So it just didn't happen. But so what are you working on right now? My second novel right now. I'm just, I, I'm just calling it uh the lion in the wine. Just, it's a placeholder. It's like a, what I do with a lot of character names until the names, like a name really grabs me. I put placeholders in. So it could be my dad's in one, my mom, my friends. You know? So the, the lion in the wine was just one that uh, I had that I just kind of put on there to have a folder name. And with my stories, you'll see that too. Sometimes it's got the most absurd titles because I, I just couldn't come up with one. And I'll put something for fun on there and it sticks. I just leave it. So <laughs> You want to uh, tell us a little <laughs> bit about what the novel is about, the one that you're working on? Uh, it's about a little small town that's sort of run by rich farmers. It's sort of a dying town. And uh, years ago in the, like, 1920, 1919, there was a, a, something really bad happened that pitted several of the townspeople against each other. So now something bad has happened again, and a lot of those same 
families, you know, the ancestors that were against each other, they become a team against the ones who actually did it the first time, the family line that actually started the thing the first time. It's sort of like uh, how lies and propaganda will pit people against each other to redirect attention from what this group is doing to stay, to get greedy and to keep things the way they are, to manipulate. Well, this time something's happened where that doesn't work. And who used to be the enemies, now they are the, the team. So it's almost like payback for, uh, uh, you know, 70 years in the making because it's set around the late 70s. I never really give a date or a time period to any of my stories or anything, like my first novel. It's in 1991, but I never said it. I just put, like, you know, it's it's the year that uh, Nirvana gets popular. So by that, you know, people will get about what year it is. So I, I never really put a, a time. I don't put, like, ages on people. Uh, like in the story that you guys took, it, there there's no age, but you get, like, you know, time passing and stuff. And, and, you know, I just try to do things a little bit differently than what I've read before. Yeah, our story definitely has some pop culture references that, you know, mm-hmm. readers could clue into. And if they don't aren't familiar with those particular references, it doesn't take away from the story at all. You know, they would get the sense that that was a thing and, you know, that, that works that way. If somebody was new to you and they wanted to read one or two of your works, what one or two would you suggest they start with? Of course, the one that's in our journal would be one of them. Yeah, yeah, in yes, addition uh-huh. to those. It, it's it's kind of weird because I have to remember that that one's in my group of stories now because it wasn't for so long. There's one that I did it in 2004 called One Life, and my wife was from Hong Kong, and I went over there with her right after our wedding around the time of SARS. So everybody was wearing masks. So now when you look back at this, I'm talking about, and it's like years ahead of the uh, coronavirus that we, we've come to know and loathe. Um, but yeah, I was talking about a guy whose wife died of SARS in Hong Kong, and he goes back, and, and he is literally going around in these crowded areas and scraping surfaces and licking germs, trying to die of SARS so he can, however he dies, he's in the same afterlife as her because in her belief, if you die the same way, you go to the same afterlife. So he's trying to die of SARS. And then another one called Birthday Licks about a uh, a kid who was, uh, when his mom had tried to have him aborted and it didn't take and he came out missing one arm, but she died in childbirth. And every year on his birthday, his dad blames him and gives him birthday licks. He tortures him in some way. And it's, he's, it's after he's actually gotten revenge on his father and he's in a police station and he's being asked all these questions and he's trying to out of guilt, trying to show that he's guilty so he can go to jail for the rest of his life. And she's telling him, it's like a reverse interrogation, basically saying, you didn't do anything wrong. They've seen the pictures of these birthday licks and all these fractured bones and burns and cuts and stuff. And it's just him trying to come to grips with the guilty feels of what's happened. That one was taken by a place that um, was raising money for child child abuse. And they really told me that they sat around a big table when they read it and they, they were, you know, crying and stuff. And so that one was one that I was very proud of. Yeah, it's definitely a lot for people to think about and reflect on with those intense, darker themes, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, any last thoughts that you have for us? And if you want to invite people to follow you on social media or mention your website? Uh, yes, it, the website is it's kevinnovalina.com. Um, I'm in the process of changing my last name from Brown to Novalina. Nova being my second daughter and Lena being my first. And it's also a town I used in my first book. So I'm changing my last name to Novalina. So it's kevinnovalina.com is is my uh website and then 
Kevin Novalina on Twitter. I've only sent one tweet. <laughs> and, I, um, and an author that uh, I tweeted about actually joined me or uh, follows me or whatever it's called and liked it. So that was kind of neat. I, I just, as, like I said, I'm not very good at marketing. And he, this is the guy in D.C. sort of pushing me to get out of my comfort zone. And, and okay, well, you know, and just let's hope that some people listening will find, <laughs> come and find you on Twitter and follow you. That'd be great. I mean, and I'm I'm open to anybody ever wants to ask questions or anything. Like, I'm not the brightest at what we're talking about, but I know I've got a lot of experience. And, you know, I do a writer's group now, and, and uh, people in my group, they wanted to get published, and I had been publishing a lot, so they wanted to, to, to join me in a group. And they've all started to publish and win awards and stuff. So, we, we you know, I, I'll give the best advice I can on stuff. I know it's when I started, I always wanted to ask that kind of thing and nobody wanted to ever talk about it. So. All right. That that's beautiful. One. And now people know they can come find you on Twitter and ask you questions sure. and you'll be happy to answer them. I'll, I'll give it my best. Awesome. <laughs> well, thanks a lot for joining us today and for chatting and we wish you well and Thank hope you. that you'll send us some more stuff. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This yeah. was great. Thank you for listening to our talented poets and authors. Until next time, this has been Washington Square On Air. Where we showcase selections from Lansing Community College's literary journal, The Washington Square Review. A publication featuring writers in the Great Lakes State, across the nation, and around the world. To find out more about the Washington Square Review, visit lcc.edu slash WSR. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed sharing. This has been a presentation of LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. All shows featured on LCC Connect are recorded at the WLNZ studio located on LCC's downtown campus. Each program is podcast-based and can be heard anytime at lccconnect.org. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on one of our shows, connect with us by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu.